Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go to First Timothy, the last handful of verses there. First Timothy. Did you guys enjoy uh, Monday night, those of you who were there? I pray that you did. Let's take a vote. Who liked Robbie's sermon better than... I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, who understood Brian better than Robbie? I'm just kidding. It's good. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a cable that's not hooked up, and so Robbie is going to be gracious and hook that up. I kept hearing the bass coming from my left ear and not from my right ear. I'm like, wow, that feels awkward. Anyway, it made it not, no one else probably noticed, but uh, particularly if you're sitting on this side. I'm like, I can hear Colin from that side, but I can't hear him from this side. And, and I, I miss, like, feeling Colin make my heart, like, rumble, you know? <laughs> so, anyways, First Timothy. We're going to stretch out the remaining verses of First Timothy for, like, three more months. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Uh, no one laughed. Is everyone ready to be done with First Timothy, or have you enjoyed First Timothy? Enjoyed First Timothy? Yeah, yeah, I have. Praise God. All right, we don't have much time today, so we have to listen very quickly, okay? Very, very quickly. Today's going to look and feel a little bit different than typical. The word will still be the same. Exposition will still be the same. Just the structure of today's service will be a little different than typical. So, with that said, let's jump right into 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, just as a quick overview, we have learned about the following things. We've learned about fighting legalism. We've learned about right behavior for men and women in the church. We've learned what leaders should look like in the body of Christ. We've learned about pursuing godliness. We've learned about persevering in the faith. We've learned about servants and how we are servants of King Jesus. How we get to be servants of King Jesus. We've learned about honoring our leaders, particularly leaders in the body. You know, in all of this, as we've talked about for Timothy. Timothy is, I mean, largely is a book written to leaders, but certainly the, the application does not stop at that. But in all this, God has charged leaders in the church with setting an example and leading the charge, or setting an example of leading the charge, or and leading the charge in all these things, and leading the charge in fighting legalism, and the right behavior, and he has called out men, and in this body, Rusty and I in particular, to be set apart for observation, following, and, and imitation. And, and I'm not saying this for purpose of, of building Rusty and I up. I'm, I say this for purpose of hopefully propping your eyelids up. But here, as we come to a close in 1 Timothy, we will see, I think, six marks of a leader in God's kingdom. Six marks of a leader in God's kingdom. These are marks that I think are aimed at leaders by titles, for instance, pastors, elders, deacons, etc., but 
These are also marks for all of us, I believe. All of us, because we're all called to lead in some capacity. I think Satan has us convinced that there's all those are the leaders, those are the guys or ladies that are called to know the Bible, they're called to, you know, and, and then for me, I, I kind of get a pass, right? I can kind of, you know, like someone once said to, to Rusty when they were talking about how much he reads his Bible, and the person said, well, yeah, but you're a pastor. What? And Rusty's response, well, I would read the Bible this much if I wasn't a pastor. At least that's my hope. Uh, so we're all called to lead in, in some capacity. Leading in our own lives. Ever thought about that? Like leading yourself to the cross? How about leading your families? Is that just the husband's job? Oh, ladies, you have a big role in that too. Leading our kids? Leading our coworkers? You ever thought about that? Do you have a responsibility to lead your coworkers to the gospel of Jesus Christ? You have a responsibility to lead them in that capacity. So I think what a great way to end 1 Timothy. How do we fight legalism? We must be marked by these characteristics of a leader. How do we promote right behavior in the church? We must be marked by these characteristics of a leader. How do we preserve or persevere, rather, in the faith? We must be marked by these characteristics of a leader. So how do we do all of the things that Timothy, that Paul has commanded Timothy, and by implication and application to us, how do we do these things? We must be marked by these characteristics of a leader. So with that said, let's read 1 Timothy 6, 11-16. Set the stage there for us. Starting verse 11. It says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. My goal for today, the goal for today in these few verses here, I want you to see and to measure your fight of the faith by the markers listed here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that you would be encouraged in your perseverance by looking at these markers and going, how do these look in my life? What is there? What is absent? What's not there? That you'd be encouraged in your perseverance by these things. To do all that Timothy was commanded to do for us to do these things. Mark number one. God's leader realizes There's a fight. 
God's leader realizes there's a fight. At the risk of sounding mean here, many of us don't realize there's a fight. Or at least if I look, if we look at your life with any sort of thought and analyzation, we would, we would have to walk away thinking that you think there's no fight. But a redeemed child of God knows that there's a fight. A fight of the faith. This is a characteristic. Paul, Timothy here, know that there's a fight. This is kind of the unspoken mark in this text. And when he talks about this fight of the faith, you make the good fight of the faith. First of all, Timothy, Timothy has to realize that there's a fight. And Paul has to know that there's a fight Church, it's not just a fight to be a good person, but an all-out battle for the salvation of your soul. That's the fight. Now, I'm sorry we didn't take time to build into that, but just to drop it out there, there's a fight. The other day, Chapman got to experience, um, he went with Mom or Kim to uh, the thing that had happened at her work, and basically this... This event had happened. I'm trying to keep things anonymous, but uh, and essentially, this lady was upset because something had happened to one of her possessions. And Chapman comes home and telling me the story. It says well, she was upset. She was upset. She was upset. Okay, Chapman, why was she upset? Why was she? Why was she angry? Well, because this happened to her. This this event happened to this lady, and I. Said Chapman. So, do you think she wanted that event to happen? He says, "No, no, no. You're right. She didn't want that event to happen. She wanted something else to happen. Right, right. She didn't want that to happen. Instead, she wanted something else to happen. Yeah. So, why was she really upset? She wasn't upset because this particular event took place. She's upset because." The way she wanted life to happen didn't happen. And so I told my son, I said, son, I said, this happens to all of us. We get upset because our will and what we want to happen doesn't happen. And what we say is that, God, your will for me, I don't like it. And I'm angry because of it. Now, my son may have only understood like 15% of that, you know, or and maybe even that's hopeful. But the reality is, is that our whole world pushes us to think that the fight's over there. That, that the reason for what's going on in my life and the why, why I'm upset or why I don't have hope or why I'm missing joy or, or why my life is, is because of that over there. And that the battle isn't really fought inside here. The battle's fought out there. But the battle begins in here before it can ever be fought out there. But our whole world is trying to convince us that there is no fight. And I want my son to know that there's a fight. That there's a fight for your soul. And that I right now, sitting on the couch with you talking about this stupid incident, am fighting for your soul, my son. For two reasons. One, because I realize there's a fight. Because two, I want my son to realize that there's a fight. 
some of us realize that there's a fight, but maybe we fight this battle with the kind of effort we put into or might put into our New Year's resolutions, right? We'll fight for it for a few weeks, and, and then it's just too much, and we give up. Maybe you approach this war as if what's at stake is just simply a depressing day. But do you understand that what's at stake is our eternal salvation? That's when Paul talks about the good fight of the faith, it's not just that we might have more joy tomorrow. Yes, that's part of it. But he is talking about something of eternal significance. He's talking about that what's at stake is, is the salvation of those around us. And I think most importantly, what's at stake is God's glory as we fight this fight and our joy in Him. This is what is at stake. Do you fight as if that's what's at stake? Let me ask you this question. Do, do the events of your heart, mind, and body this past week display a war-type mentality of this battle or one of leisure and peace? The way you spent your time, resources this past week, does it say that you realize there's a fight? Moving forward, mark number two. God's leader will flee certain temptations. God's leader will flee certain temptations. 1 Timothy 6.11. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And what is he saying, flee these things? You need to reach back into your mind from what Rusty preached on last week. He's talking about money. He's talking about fleeing the temptation of money. But what is really going on with money? What is, is, it just, is it just money? Is he just saying when you see the dollar bill or see the, dollar, the, the amount in your checking account that you should like hurry up and pay the bill and close your eyes? I mean, what, what's, what's, he, what's he saying? How do we, how do we, what's the deal with money? And, I, and I, we'll get to more of this later, but I think what he's talking about with money, that the danger here is really is self-sufficiency. That we would take the money, that we would see the money as our means, our ability, our provision. Therefore saying, God, I, I don't know about you. I don't know if I need this. I don't know that I need you. The notion that we could provide all that we need for life and therefore having no need for God. I think that's really the danger in wealth anyways. That's why the rich man would be so hard for him to be saved. Why? Because... It's seen as his own provision. And if it's his own provision, then that means he is worthy of worship. Right? I mean, the money itself isn't sinful, but the lie of self-sufficiency is. Paul is saying, don't play with this. Flee it. A leader will flee these things. It's interesting. We talk about fleeing sexual immorality. Right? Running away from those temptations. There's other things that we're called to war against. But this idea of money and self-sufficiency, we're told to flee, to run, to get out of here. Let me ask maybe a point of application. Fathers, as leaders of your house, have you ever told your kids or plan to tell your kids to don't go play with fire? Have you ever told your kid don't play with fire? 
Have you ever told your kid they'll wet the bed if they play with fire? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Has anyone ever heard that? Yeah. I've, I've heard that a ton. I mean, not necessarily from my parents, but I've heard it from other people. Like, yeah, you'll wet the, you'll wet the bed if you play with fire. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. The fathers, listen to me. Then why do we play with fire? Why do we play with fire if we keep telling our kids not to? You say, you say, well, how am I playing with fire? Let me ask you this. What are you sacrificing to get that paycheck? What are you sacrificing to build a kingdom of self-sufficiency? You're playing with fire. Paul says flee. It's not worth it. I'd rather my family live in a cardboard box and to not sacrifice some of the things we sacrifice and save the souls of my kids than to give them anything that this world has to offer. Husbands with wives that work, what sacrifice are you making her give for that paycheck? Some of the sacrifices we give, valuable parental time with our children. Valuable time in the Word with our God. Valuable time with the family of God. We're playing with fire. Paul says, flee. Oh man of God, flee these things. Run from these things. Don't play with these things. Get out of there. Maybe another way we play with fire, men, is that when we bring that paycheck home or we see it in our account, does your heart rest easier? Is your heart at peace more when you see the money sit there? Like, oh, thank God, I can rest now, except you're not really thanking God. Just surely kind of thinking yourself. Man, the danger, the danger, the danger is that one day we would wake up as the rich man and say, I don't need you, God. I'm good on my own. He says to Timothy, flee these things. Leave. Don't play with it. Don't dabble with it. Don't wean yourself off of it. Flee. Flee these things. So the first mark of a leader is that he realized that there's a fight. Men, women, we need to realize there's a fight. Second, there are certain things that we need to learn to flee and stop playing with. We just need to take off. No discussion. No discussion need to be had. We just move on. We run. Mark number three, God's leader will have certain pursuits. God's leader will have certain pursuits. If you are a redeemed child of God, you will be known by having certain pursuits. We are all known by the pursuits that we have. We are all pursuing something. I think the great lie of our day is that we can think that we sit in neutral. We're not sitting neutral. We're always in drive. You're always pursuing something. Even as you sit and watch the television, you are pursuing something. 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 6.11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue. So instead of 
So leave these things to pursue these things. And he says pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Again, just reflective questions here. Thinking back over this past week, what does your schedule this past week say that you are pursuing? What is it you're pursuing? What, do you, what does the record book of your thoughts say that you are pursuing? Does it say that you're pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfast, gentleness? Or does it say that you're pursuing things like control, things like lust, things like self-sufficiency? What are you pursuing? What does the log of repentance say that you're pursuing? What does your log of repentance say? Or the lack thereof say that you are pursuing? I'm not going to belabor this because we've talked a lot about pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, and love. And you it's a previous sermon on that earlier on that you can hit. But mark number three is that God's leader will have certain pursuits. We all have certain pursuits in the general sense, but, a, but God's leader will have these certain pursuits. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Mark number four. God's leader fights the right battle. So not only does he recognize there's a battle, and a part of that battle strategy, he flees certain things and pursues certain other things, but he's also fighting the right battle. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Don't fight any other fight, Timothy. Fight this fight. Fight this battle. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Question, what battle have you been fighting this past week? What battle have you been fighting this past week? You know, the most tiring battle that you and I will ever fight is the battle to build our own kingdom. And if you're not battling to build God's kingdom, then you're battling to build your kingdom. Those are your two options. This is why so many of us, listen to me church, this is why so many of us are so worn out all the time. You know why? Because when you build your own kingdom, you have to draw up the plans yourself. You have to gather the money yourself. We have to purchase the resources ourselves. We have to construct the frame ourselves. And then we have to pay for the upkeep of that kingdom ourselves. That's why it gets so tiring. That's why that battle wears you out. But what, so what does your kingdom concern itself with? What does my kingdom concern itself with? Sometimes it might be standards for control or persuasion, manipulation of others, a kingdom of comfort and ease or a kingdom of blissful adoration from others. And we just try to keep building these kingdoms and, and we wear ourselves out. Ultimately, the battle, though, that we should be fighting is the fight of the faith. That's what's at stake Really, the options are this. You can build your own kingdom and forfeit your soul. But you can't build both kingdoms. But listen to this. God in His great mercy has rescued this is, this, He has rescued us from the tireless battle of warring for our own 
kingdom. Some of us would be good this season to go back and read Ecclesiastes. He chose you and rescued you to the right battle. My, my, if I could get my kids to understand this, right? Like Chapman, you're warring the wrong battle, my friend. You're warring the wrong battle. You're on the wrong field, fighting the wrong people. Right? Parents, how is your kids? You feel like you're warring a battle with your kids. Right? All the time, right? All the time. All the time. What do we do to our Father? If we're building our kingdom, we're warring against the Father. We are enemies of the Father. But God, in His mercy, has chosen us, at least some of us, He's chosen us and rescued us to the right battle. The battle that is built upon your confession that Jesus' kingdom is the only kingdom worth fighting for. And the beauty of this kingdom is that it's built upon an even better confession, and that is the confession of our Savior. In this battle, think about it, we have all the resources and energy we need. If you're battling the right battle, if you, if you find yourself worn out all the time, like life is wearing on you, you're probably fighting the wrong battle. But if we take a hold of our faith, listen to this, this is a little indicting, I understand. But if, if many of us would take a hold of our faith like we take a hold of our jobs, or the building of our own kingdoms, we'd probably get somewhere in this fight. We'd move forward in this fight. Look what A.W. Tozer said about true faith. He says, true faith is not passive, but active. It requires that we meet certain conditions, that we allow the teachings of Christ to dominate our total lives from the moment we believe. The man of saving faith must be willing to be different from others. The effort to enjoy the benefits of redemption while enmeshed in the world is futile, We must choose one or the other. And faith quickly makes its choice, one from which there is no retreat. Faith says, I'm going to build God's kingdom. And it makes that choice quickly, and it does not retreat from that choice. Amen? So, a leader is known by fighting the right God's leaders know by fighting the right battle. The fight of the faith. Mark number five. God's leader keeps the entirety of God's word. The entirety of God's word. First Timothy 6.14, he says, to keep the commandment. He says, I charge you, of course, in the presence of God and, and of Jesus. He says, I keep to commandment. There we go. I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what Paul means by commandment here is the entirety of God's word. He doesn't mean just the Ten Commandments. He means the entirety of God's word. Even the good fight of the faith, when he's talking about the good fight of the faith, the faith is referring to the entire body of Christian truth. So we're fighting the good fight of the faith We're keeping the commandments. He's talking about the entirety of God's word. You're fighting. But what is Christian truth? What is God's word? I'm going to just think about this with me for a second. 
It's the revelation of God, is it not? It's the revelation of who God is and what God intends to do and how that reflects His character and how we are to then bear the image and reflect that of Him. So as you are fighting for the entirety of God's Word and as a leader keeps the entirety of God's Word, you're fighting for the revealing of the Creator and your confession in it. So think about what you are fighting for. What Paul commands us to do is to keep that revealing of God, the commandments, to keep it unstained and free from blame. How do we keep it free from blame? We know it. We live it. And we help others to do the same. It's really, I think, what Paul is saying here. Know it. Live it. Help others to do the same. How can you keep something blameless, keep something unstained if you don't know it? But listen, listen, listen. What are you called to do? Think about this with me for just a moment. You're called to know God. Think about that. That's not a call to get some project done. It's not a call to bear the weight of the world. You're called to know God and His bearing the weight of the world. You know, I was reflecting this past week at this point, thinking about my, quote, job as a pastor and thinking about what my calling is. I get to study the Word of God. I get to read it. I get to know it. I, I get to try to memorize it. I get to read other books about it. Like, I get to know God, right? My calling is to get to know God, to enjoy Him, to love Him, to endure His relentless pursuit. I get, I get to do that. And what joy is bringing my heart this week as I reflected on that. Your calling is the same. It's not the calling of a pastor. It's not the calling of clergy. You get to do the same. To know it. To live it. And to help others do the same. Mark number six. God's leader keeps an eternal perspective. God's leader keeps an eternal perspective. Men, do the way you lead your families, do you have an eternal perspective? Or are you just concerned about tomorrow? I find that tomorrow gains value, but only as eternity gains value. Like to keep the right perspective on tomorrow. As eternity shines light on tomorrow. But there is again eternal perspective. We've talked about this already. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that we, even myself, get so stuck on the now that we are useless for even the tomorrow. Right here, right now. But what does he say? First Timothy 6. What does he tell Timothy in the midst of this charging? And what is he commanding him to do? He says this. 
which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We are fighting this fight, but we are only fighting this fight until the coming of our King when God will display him for all eyes to see. You see that? We fight this fight, this charge. And then one day he comes. And I think what Paul is saying here to Timothy is that, Paul, uh, to Timothy, as you fight this fight, keep this in mind. Keep this in mind. A leader fights with the end in mind. What's the end? The end is the coming of our king. The majesty of our king. The blessed and only sovereign. King of kings and Lord of lords who alone is immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light that no one has ever seen or can see Him. And to Him be honor and to Him be eternal dominion as the leader of this world and of His servants, His people. I like what A.W. Tozer said as well on this point. He says, What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about a person. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about a person. So as you move from day to day, thought to thought, battle to battle, what comes to mind when you think about God? And I thought maybe the better question would be how often does He come to mind? And then what is it that comes to mind when He does? What is it that comes to mind when I think about God? Church. We get to know God. We get to fight this battle. What comes to mind when we think about God? Paul says, let, let this come to mind. The coming of our King. The majesty of our King. The one who is blessed and only sovereign. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. Who alone is immortal. Dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see Him. What comes to mind as you fight this fight when you think about God? See, a leader of God will fight the good fight of the faith. He will flee, not assuming his strength, but assuming his weakness. He will pursue the things of God. He will fight the right battle, the battle of faith. He will keep the entirety of God's word. He will have an eternal perspective. We are called to fight with our hopes set on the return of Christ. As all of this leads up and builds up to Timothy saying, or Paul saying to Timothy, one day he comes back. One day he'll come back. You fight in hope of his return. But why? My question is this, why? Why should we find hope in the return of Christ? There's many answers to that question, but at the very least we find hope in the return of Christ because it means the kingdom that we are fighting for now, the one that we are building now, We'll be finished. We'll be on display. That at the very least, our work this side of eternity will be done. You see, Adam and Eve fought the battle with the hope of the coming king. Abraham fought the good fight of faith with the hope of the coming king. Moses fought the good fight with the hope of the coming king. King David battled with the hope and the coming of the King. And even John the Baptist fought the good fight with a hope in the coming of the King. 
2,000 years ago, that king came as a part of our Father's plan to redeem His creation and to rescue His people. He lived a perfect life. And what we know is that upon, and what we have our hope in, is that upon His return, His work will be finished. We fight the good fight of the faith because we are a part of His work on earth. And we know that when He returns, His work will be finished. So you think about it this way. Not just that our work and our battling is over, although that is wonderful, looking to the future, knowing that that will be done, but knowing that God's plan for this time will be finished. That His kingdom building in this age will be finished. That His work in this age will be done. We have hope in Christ's return because there was first hope in Christ's coming to this earth. As we enter into Christmas, we have no hope of Christ's return if there would have not been first hope in Christ's coming. We are a part of this kingdom building. What Jesus came to continue and in some ways begin anew at the birth, at the incarnation, we're a part of that building. Our hope in His return is hope that He will complete the work that He began then. And hope that He will complete His work is hope that He actually began it 2,000 years ago. It's for this reason that we celebrate the Advent. It's for this reason that we celebrate the coming of our King. We think back 2,000 years ago when Jesus came. That our hope of Him coming in the future bears no weight, has, is not hopeful whatsoever if He had not first came as a child to live the life that He did and die the death that He did. And we'll pray for us. I'm not done preaching. Okay? And we'll pray for us. We're going to sing a little bit. We'll come back and we'll talk some more. Father, thank you for this time. Father, thank you that this season that we get, we get, we get to know you. That, Father, you sent your Son, Jesus, so that we might know you. That writers could record your footsteps on this earth. Father, as we think about hope this season, as we think about why we have hope, Father, I pray that you would loose us from the chains that bind us to hopeless or to, to items that present hopelessness, that we continue to try to place our hope in those things. And Father, pray that uh, as we think about being leaders in your kingdom, Father, pray that you would, you would help us to measure these marks against our lives. And Father, that know that this is the calling that you've called us to. And then I know there's been some hard things said this morning, but, but Father, I pray that you would use those for your goodness. And Father, that we would know 
that our hope in, in living out these marks of a leader is not in our own efforts, but our hope is in your Son. As Father, He did this perfectly for us. So let us not find hope in our bootstraps, but hope in our Savior. And Father, let's, uh, let our hearts sing praises to You in these next few moments. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.